have a Bible, if you would turn to Daniel chapter 1. It is after the book of Ezekiel, and it is before the book of Hosea. If you're curious where Daniel is, I know it's not the, the most, uh, it's not like where Matthew is, which is easy to find, or Psalms. If you just write the Psalms, you just kind of take the middle of the, of the Bible and just open it up, and you will be in the Psalms. So Daniel's a little bit tougher to find, and those minor prophets. Uh, territory or property of the Bible, it tends to be difficult to find some of those books of the Bible. You can go to seminary and have a theological degree, and it's still tough to find those books in the Bible. So Daniel chapter 1, we'll read this together, so be patient. It'll take a little bit of time to read through Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them in the land of Shinar to the house of his gods and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Eshapaz, the, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemish and of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azara of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the units gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hanael he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azara he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned you your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youth who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs, had assigned over Daniel, test your servant for ten days, lest be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youth who eat the king's food who be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days, and at the end of the ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youth who ate the king's food. So the steward took away the food and the wine they were to drink and gave them, to, gave them vegetables. Verse 17. As for these four youth, God gave them learning and skills and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they would be brought in the inn, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every manner of wisdom and understanding of which the king acquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Solomon. <coughs> Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the life and story of Daniel, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for what it shows us and teaches us about your work and how you're very much involved in your creation. You're very much involved in the, the history of man. 
But Lord, we ask this day that this Daniel exposes us, Lord, to, to our struggles and some things that enter into our life, Lord, that we kind of call out to you, like, why is this happening? Why are these happening to me? We cry out to you, Lord. We say, Lord, may, your, may my, prayer, my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I'm overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted amongst those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. Strength. We feel like these sometimes. Or we feel we don't have strength. We feel weak. I'm set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more. You cut off from your care. You put me in the lowest pit, the darkest depth. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. And I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Or some of us feel that way this morning. We feel, Lord, that we are the lowest of lows. That we have been abandoned by you. That you have cast us off from our comfort from our family, from our closest friends. We, we feel alone and isolated. We cry out, Lord, to show yourself to us. Lord, teach us this morning your sovereignty and how much you're involved in our lives, how you're in control, how you are accomplishing all things to accomplish your purpose and will, not only in history, but also in our own actual lives. That we as Children of you are a part of your great story. We're a part of what you are accomplishing, Lord, and you're using us, and you're putting things in our lives, Lord, to strengthen us and to use us for your greater glory. Pray, pray that you would give us that understanding and that perspective. Teach us, Lord, what it means to be in your hands, that you do not abandon us. You do not cast us away from your presence. That you're always with us. Like, give us that encouragement. Give us that that understanding. Give us that assurance this morning. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We pray for those who aren't with us because they are traveling and we pray for Elena and Connor Melvin who are who are in their, their countries and we thank you that they got there safely. We pray for their time there. We pray for other things going on in our in our church and in our in our midst, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would use us to further your glory and further your praise. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, we live in an interesting world today, don't we? Uh, the kind of the, the title of our, our our sermon today is Christian identity in a shape shifter world, uh, God's sovereignty and Christian holiness. And what I mean by shape shifting, shape shifter world is people. We, we live in a fluid world, right? There's people when they talk about their identity, it's extremely fluid. Like you have people who think that they are literally asexual, but like they don't have a gender. They they say that I'm not male or female. I think uh, Miley Cyrus came out recently and said that she was pansexual, meaning she's some days she feels, feels female, some days she feels male. It just depends on the day. There's other understandings with transgender and, and, and homosexuality and other types of identities that people are trying to define themselves by their own choices and by their own preferences. So we live in this shape-shifter world where you just don't really know. I, I remember reading an article by one of, the, one of our members, uh, Sarah Rogers, who, uh, who she writes for the, the paper at USI, and she wrote an article about a student that some of us know, 
at USI who, um, who, who's a female but doesn't identify herself as a female. She identifies herself as multigender, multiracial. So in the, in the article, it was interesting when I was reading it, Sarah kept on using a plural pronoun to talk about a singular person. And I'm like, Sarah, I think your grammar's wrong, but she, her grammar wasn't wrong. This is how this person identified themselves as a actual plural, as you should use the their or them to address or to explain who she is or who he is and this type of thing. So we live in this fluid world. Where, and, and there's an article in the New York Times. This was an article written, written in 2015, but it, it was titled The Year We Obsessed Over Identity. And kind of the, the tag, it says, in 2015, headlines and cultural events have confronted us with the malleability of racial, gender, sexual, and reputational lines. Who do we think we are? And he kind of talks about, do you remember the, the lady? She was, um, she, her name was Rachel uh, Dalzell. She uh, became the president of the NAACP in Seattle, Washington. But it, people found out, too, she was actually white but not black. But she identified herself as African-American. She married an African-American man. She actually changed her hair to look more African-American. Her skin color she changed to look more African-American. And then when the black community found out she wasn't actually black, she actually had white parents. They were an uproar. They said, you can't be the president of the NAACP if you're white. But she identified with the black community. She felt like she had the preference and the choice to say, I know I had white parents, but I feel African-American. I feel black. And there are people that were in uproar that, but we live in a culture that people are trying to, to identify themselves with their choices and their preferences. There's even in, um, in a lot of uh, um, uh, entertainment today, we see this. There's actually a movie. I didn't see the movie. Uh, there was a movie that came out recently called The Danish Girl. And it was about a man who, who it was like one of the first men, I guess, in history that actually changed their, their sexuality. They, they took on some type of, uh, they, they had a surgery done so that they looked more feminine. It's a movie that came out a few years ago that was nominated for Academy Awards. You would also think of uh, Caitlyn Jenner, who, who was a, a Bruce Jenner, who was an athlete, who won the gold medal in the Olympics, who had the surgery done to change their gender to be female. There was actually a TV show on Amazon called Transparent, where, a, where an older man, a patriarch of a family, becomes a trans woman who kids call her Moppy. And think of the word, the, 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 I didn't see the Broadway show Hamilton, but Hamilton is the very same way. It was a, it was a uh, fictional depiction of the founding fathers not being white, but being black. That, that Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, was really black and not actually white. What would they have been like? What, what decisions would they have made if they were black and not white? So we had this question of, who am I? What is my identity? There's a, a book, a big book that I got from the library that was recommended in, the, in an article that I read from the New York Times called Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon. And it talks about identity. Where do we get our identity? And he, he mentions in like the first chapter about vertical identities. And vertical identities is a, is, a, is a term that means the transmission of identity from one generation to the next. So attributes or values are passed down from the parent to the child through strands of DNA and cultural norms. Ethnicity is a vertical identity. So if you are a black parent, your, your children are going to be ethnically black. If you're white parents and you have children, your, your kids are going to be Caucasian. And so these are, these are, these are uh, identities that are, are passed on from the generation before the next. Language is a vertical identity. Nationality is a vertical identity. If you are born Greek, 
that is your nationality, if your parents are Greek. Even if you immigrate to the United States, you still kind of carry on that language and that culture of your nationality. We, not choo- we do not choose to have these characteristics. They are passed down to us by our parents. We understand this. It's not, we may not use the term vertical identities, but we understand this idea that if we have children, they, our children look like us. They talk like us in a lot of ways. But there's also another understanding of identity, which is horizontal identity. These are a particular acquired trait that is foreign to his or her parents, possibly chosen from the influence of a peer group, preferences that a child does not share with his or her parents. As society becomes more fluid with identities, people define their identities more by their preferences than by what they were given by their parents. Even when we talk about ethnicity, right? I just use the example of the, girl, the woman from Seattle. She identified as black, even though she had white parents. We also see this trend among Christians as well. After being taken to the church by their parents, they start to assimilate their Christian vertical identity with the many preferences and choices of the world. I am a Christian. I am a Christian from birth, but my identity and actuality is defined more by my choices and my preferences, not by the religion passed down by my parents. Therefore, a Christian really doesn't stand out in a shapeshifter world, born a Christian, but assimilated into a belief system of the wider world. Sexual, sexual ethics is similar. Priority of money and work over God is similar. Xenophobic towards strangers is similar to the world. Christians don't influence people in the world because Christians don't look much different than the world. Even many of the sermons preached in America today have a highly inspirational focus while fearful to call people to repentance. Why do you think Joel Olstein is so popular? A Christianity that does not call people to holiness is a Christianity that has been assimilated into the self-help and, uh, self-help and positive thinking philosophy of American gurus like Oprah or others. No accusation of legalism. I'm sorry, no wonder Christianity does not stand out in America. It's hard to find. It's hard to find Christianity in this identity-obsessed and shapeshifter world. The fear of the accusation of legalism has emptied Christianity from any any public identity that distinguishes Christians from the world and then influences the world. So I really want to talk about identity. What does it what does it look like to be a Christian? In this world, and I think Daniel helps us to understand this because you have Daniel and his friends that are in a different world. They are in a strange world. They are in an alien world, and they are placed there. How do they identify as worshipers of God in a land that does not worship God? So, to present a little bit of context, Daniel is an interesting figure in the Bible because he shares so many similarities as another great hero of the Bible, which is Joseph. Joseph in the coat of many colors, not Joseph, the father of Jesus. In the story of Joseph, he describes a young man of God who finds himself in an alien environment. He's in Egypt. He grows up his whole life with his, his father Jacob and his, his, 11 bro- his 10 brothers, and he's then sold into slavery by his brothers, right? Now he's in Egypt, no longer amongst his family, stranger to this land, Surrounded by strangers and held captive by a foreign nation, God's goodness and sovereignty is put on display. While at the same time, Joseph is shown trusting in God and fleeing dishonor and sin. And the result of of his holiness leads to great influence. 
Joseph becoming the sacred second in command over the empire of Egypt, his position led to the salvation of his family, and at that time, the small nation of Israel. I mean, Israel at that time was just about 70 people, which is Joseph's family. And he was the savior of that nation before it became the nation of Israel that we see after the Exodus and with Moses. So he's seeing in both stories with Joseph and Daniel the result of displaying their true God-fearing identities, and the results led to influence in the world. So the fourth point is coming from Daniel 1, 1 through 7, is context, context, context. We understand this term. We, we say context, context. Well, a lot of time in real estate, we talk about you know, location, location, location. You know, where the house is is almost more important than the actual house. And how many rooms it has, how many bathrooms it has, the square footage of the house, the landscaping of the house, where it is located is also really important. Location really matters. Context really matters. It's, it's kind of interesting because Lisa's family, my wife's Lisa's family lives in Brentwood, Tennessee. And nearby Brentwood is Franklin, Tennessee. If you know anything about Franklin, Tennessee, it's this area that is just booming in value of the real estate. You, know, you buy these little houses with like two bedrooms and one bath, and you're spending Google's oodles amount of money because of where it's located. So context is really important. Understanding the surrounding culture and understanding the sur- surrounding environment helps us understand what's going on here in Daniel 1. We see Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon. He came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Nebuchadnezzar was one of the first great conquerors of the world. Uh, He was similar to other great kings of empires. You have Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, Charlemagne, Napoleon. We know these figures through history, and as we study history as kids, we see these great kings of empires. Well, really, Nebuchadnezzar was the first great uh, king of an empire. In, six, in 605 BC, after the Battle of Carchemish, Nebuchadnezzar invades Judah to push the Egyptians back to Egypt and eventually conquer the Pharaoh. We, we kind of talked a little bit about that last week. Um, there was a map that I showed about kind of where Babylon kind of just took over a lot of the uh, former Assyrian Empire. They basically defeated the Assyrians at the Battle of Kemesh in 605. And then Nebuchadnezzar took his army and pushed his, well, his way through Palestine to Judah because he wanted to push the Egyptians out of Palestine and, and eliminate their influence in the region and actually push them to the brink of actually conquering Egypt. And Nebuchadnezzar actually never successfully conquered Egypt. He actually, when his father died, he had to go back to Babylon to kind of claim his throne. He actually went back to Egypt years later, but still was unsuccessful at conquering Egypt. So we see here that Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Egypt. And we see that um, the Lord gave the king of Judah into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God. There's a really interesting term that Daniel uses to describe God. He doesn't use Yahweh. He uses Adonai. And Adonai is a term that means owner or ruler or sovereign. That in this context of talking about King Nebuchadnezzar and how King Nebuchadnezzar and his army has conquered Judah, has conquered Jerusalem, Daniel says that God, the sovereign, the true sovereign, the true ruler of the world was in control. He gave Judah to Nebuchadnezzar. 
Isaiah 39, 1 through 7 says, At that time, Murdoch, the son of Baldon, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and, and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house. He actually has, this is way before what we, the events we have here with Daniel. So years before this, the Babylonians came, and Hezekiah, the king of Judah, showed them all of the treasures of the temple. And showed the son of the king all the treasures of Judah. And God said, because you did this, that he was actually going to give the nation of Israel to the Babylonians. That he was going to actually give the treasures that Hezekiah showed the, the, the Babylonians. He was going to give those treasures to the Babylonians. So prophesying what God was going to do through Nebuchadnezzar. He even says in, in verse 7 of Isaiah 39 that some of your own sons will come from you whom you will father and shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. I mean, he's prophesying what we see in Daniel chapter 1. So God is very much in control. The Lord is the one who gives and hands over Judah to Nebuchadnezzar. The real subject of the action in this story is God. God is the subject. He's the one pushing the action. Nebuchadnezzar, he does come with greed and hunger for glory and conquest, yet God is in control of the action. It's interesting that Daniel uses the title for God in verse 2, Adoniah, the, the, the sovereign, the ruler. And it's comforting for Daniel and the people of Israel to know that God is the true sovereign, the true ruler of man in history, not Nebuchadnezzar. Nothing happens outside God's sovereign will. God is sovereign over your life as well and places you in many of your situations in your life. Daniel and his people are placed by God in an unfortunate situation. They're outside of their homes. They've been taken from their homes and placed in a stranging land, in a foreign land. The question is, how will they respond in the situation that God has placed them? That is the real question, not why they're there, but the big question is how will they respond while being in a foreign land in an alien environment? So Nebuchadnezzar brings the vessels from the temple, from the house of God, and places them in the treasury of his gods in the land of Shinar. These empires are basically pirates. I mean, they're really no different than pirates. They go into a land and they take what they want. They pillage what they want. They seek to pillage the booty of a nation. They just take what they want and then move on, like locusts. So they take the gold treasures of Solomon's temple and takes them to their religious temple that celebrates the Babylonian gods and nation, which basically symbolizes the conquest of the Babylonian god over, over Yahweh. The treasure is their share of the conquest. Basically, they would take the religious uh, symbols and, and, and treasures from a, from a temple of a, of a nation they conquered and take them to their temple of their God and say, our God is stronger than your God. See, your stuff is in his house. Now, I was thinking about this. What would be something that would be the equivalent in our context uh, that's to help us understand what's really going on, to understand the, the demoralization of this? I guess during the Cold War, if the Russians had invaded the U.S. and pillaged the, the Washington, D.C., and had taken the Declaration of Independence and other priceless American treasures and placed them in the Tomb of Lenin, which I've been to the Red Square, and there's a Tomb of Lenin off to the side that is like a holy place. They literally worship Vladimir Lenin, and they took those treasures and they would have placed them in the Tomb of Lenin. 
It would be a great loss, a demoralizing to our national morale, if if the Russians were able to take what's so precious to us and place it in their temples. Or if ISIS had taken the same treasures to Mecca, it would be demoralizing. They've won. They've beaten us. The land of Shiner represents a false religion, a place where, which glorified man's achievement, the treasure of conquest and glory. The land of Shiner is another name for the land of Babylon, which instantly derives its name from the famous episode of man's attempt to glorify themselves over God in the Tower of Babel, where their name comes from. The land of man's achievement, the land of glorifying human achievement. God chose to give those over to Babylon for a time. So Nebuchadnezzar commanded, God has given Nebuchadnezzar authority over the matters at hand. He came and besieged, he brought in place, the king commanded, he assigned. Nebuchadnezzar has been given authority by God to act. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is ignorant of this. He's ignorant of God's actions. He's ignorant of God's plan and God's power. But God has, in a sense, deputized Nebuchadnezzar to judge his people. The, and so his chief of staff, he, the, the word eunuch doesn't ever mean like necessarily that he was a eunuch, but that he, was a, a, he, he had authority in the court, that he was the chief of staff. He was a trusted advisor and a counselor. And he tells his chief of staff, his chief, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. He says, youth without blemish, of good appearance and skill in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning and competent to stand in the king's palace and teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Basically, Chaldeans means the Babylonians, Babylonian literature and wisdom. Not only does Babylon pillage, they also tax you heavily. I mean, you're talking about taxes without representation. They, California, taxed you. I mean, they taxed you out of your ears. And so they would tax you. And the point was is that you demoralize you so much, you would never, ever want to rebel. You will never, ever come out of the ashes. It would wipe you away, demoralize you. Not only did they demoralize you by taxing you, they would demoralize you by taking your prized treasures and placing them in their hall of fame as tokens of their awesomeness. And then they also would take all your best and brightest and institutionalize them. And I try to think of a way to help us understand this. It would be like the Russians or the Chinese stealing our best basketball players, like our young up-and-comers. And I, I know we have some Kentucky fans. So it's like taking um, uh, Anthony Davis... And saying, we're going to institutionalize you and we're going to make you a, a member of the Chinese national basketball team. And he's going to wear a Chinese basketball uniform. He's going to play the Americans in the Olympics. And he's going to beat the Americans because they stole them and institutionalized them, demoralizing us. Stealing your breast scientists to help them make a better weapon or other technological advances. Nations have little choice in ever recovering after an empire like Babylon marched into your country and conquered you. You had no means of actually advancing or getting out of the rut. They were to be trained and serve the king and the, the enemy. They were, they, they, you took your young, your bright, uh, best and brightest, and you institutionalized them, you educated them in your own literature, your own wisdom, and then you used them against his own people. They needed a proper education, a Babylonian education. They were given an education to serve the king, uh, an administration, and politics. They became Babylonian scholars and political advisors. They were also given new names to further institutionalize or really Babylonize these young Judaites. 
I mean, they even gave them new names. And it's the names are fascinating. Because you're, you think about these names, you're like, why did they change their names? What's the importance of that? The names that, that, that um, uh, Jewish parents would give their children were names that brought praise to God. They would be names that showed how they're identified as Yahweh worshipers. Well, the Babylonians gave them names to mock their God. So they changed their names to be actually worshipers of the Babylonian gods. So their names were a mockery. So it's difficult when you're being assimilated into this new way of life. Their vertical identity is being erased to be replaced by a, by a, by a Babylonian identity. So verses 8 through 16, you see this, 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 this emphasis on assimilating them into a Babylonian way of life in the Babylonian culture. And a way to explain this is, I, know, I don't know if you're Star Trek fans, but the Borg. The Borg were this like, race of uh, uh, Star Trek enemy, and they had the, the great slogan, you will be assimilated. And their job, what they wanted to do is just assimilate you completely into their collective. That sounds really nerdy, I know, but that's, that's Star Trek. Uh, and just getting even more nerdy, get British nerdy, uh, Doctor Who, uh, there, was a, an, there was an enemy race called the Cybermen, and they wanted to upgrade you. You will be upgraded. Very similar thing. They wanted to assimilate you into their collective. To take away your, your identity and to give them, to give the, the, the uh, assimilate them into their identity. Assimilation is a process by which they take away your, your being and your culture and your technology and they place it into theirs. It's similar to an empire who marches around pillaging city-states and assimilating their people into their collective. And up to the point in the story, God has handed power over to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar has wielded that power effectively. The Judaites, the royal family, Jerusalem, the temple, the Davidic king has been objects of that action. The subject of the story have, has wielded power over them. They've just been objects in the hands of, of this king. So verse 8 is interesting. You have this change. I don't know if you notice it's a subtle change. In the first, first seven verses, it was all Nebuchadnezzar. He was the subject. He was wielding his power. And then in verse 8, the power changes. In verse 8, we see that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. So Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself, including the education that was given. There was also, they were fed from the king's table. So Daniel chose to make this the line he would refuse to cross. Some scholars argue that Daniel chose not to eat of the meat and the wine because they were most definitely offered to idols before being served on the king's table. So Daniel's like, I'm not eating something that's been, that's been um, offered to, to idols and to four gods. However, grains would have most likely also been offered to gods before being served on the king's table as well. And David most likely had eaten all food from seed, which would have included grain. However, it's possible that was one of the reasons Daniel chose not to eat of the meat or drink the wine. I'm persuaded more by the overall fact that Daniel refused to be completely assimilated and as a result of losing his identity as a worshiper of God who gave strict rules on eating to his people. He, he listened to the education. He, he went to class, right? It says that he did very well in class. But he made this the line he would refuse to cross. He's not going to be completely assimilated into the Babylonian identity, therefore losing his unique identity as a worshiper of Yahweh. The dietary laws of God had more to do with distinguishing from the other nations of the world. You are what you, are what you eat. 
There's nothing morally wrong with eating a pork sandwich, right? Some of us who ate pork yesterday at a wedding, we didn't commit a sin because we ate a really good pork sandwich. It's not a moral action. What the issue here with the dietary laws of Israel was it sets them apart from the rest of the world. It distinguished them as worshipers of God who gave them this law. And people go, why do you not eat pork sandwiches? Because our God, the creator of you, the one true God, told us not to eat of it. Well, that's interesting. Daniel asked. Daniel became the subject of the action to follow. The Babylonians become the object of his influence. He asked the chief to allow him not to defile himself. Let's think of this request in context here. Do you think insulting the king of the greatest empire of the known world this time by refusing his food is the best path to success in his new environment? Do you think that's the best course of action to go, yeah, I know you're like the strongest man on the planet right now, like you're the Thanos of this world, but I'm not eating the food from your table. Like, who are you to say that? You're just this guy who I just conquered your country and I brought you here and forced you to learn what I wanted to teach you and you're going to tell you're not going to eat from my food, from my table? That would be insulting. Not a really good path to success for Daniel. This is, this is a obey and survive type of situation, right? Just do what you're told, man. Don't make an issue. Don't, don't become a hero. Just do what you're told and we'll survive. You can imagine the other Judaites with Daniel, the others who ate the king's food, bewildered by Daniel's action. This is how you're gonna, this is not how you get promotions. This is not how you get advancement in the king's court. Rather, this is the best way to get executed. I mean, even the chief's like, hey, 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 I don't know if this is a good idea. Like, I'm kind of afraid that if I let you not eat of the king's food, he's gonna ask me why you're so weak, and he's gonna kill me. He's gonna take my head off. The quality of the food was the best. It was the king's food. The temptation to eat needs uh, eat food that looked delicious and rich must have been quite great. Eating food for the first time you've never eaten before. Think about because they would have eaten pork. Think about a, an Israelite seeing pork for the first time and going, "Yeah, that looks good. I'm going to eat that. I don't care. I, we're not in Israel anymore. We're in Babylon. I'm going to eat what they give me. And it looks good. It looks delicious. And actually, I'm supposed to eat this, so I'm actually doing the right thing by eating it." They're away from home. Their parents would never have known they ate food prohibited by their faith. This is like college life, right? I mean, they're in the dorm room, and they're, like, given something they're not supposed to. Like, maybe it's alcohol, and their parents are, like, strict on not drinking alcohol. And they're in a dorm room, and their friends are like, you should drink for the first time. They're like, well, my parents aren't going to find out. They're not here. I'm in college. Do as the Romans do. Do as the Babylonians do. That's kind of a, that's kind of a college life. You kind of do things that your parents would never let you do. Kind of a similar situation going on here. And as God had abandoned them to the Babylonians, they should just do as the Babylonians do. Have a new master, a new king, a new way of life, right? Why does it matter how they obey the law of Yahweh? He's abandoned them. He sent them there. But God gives Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief. The chief loves and respects Daniel. The sovereign Lord was in control of the situation. He has given Daniel tactfulness and intellect and kindness to earn the respect of the chief a top advisor of Nebuchadnezzar. God hands the chief over to Daniel. Daniel is able to influence the chief. He said to the steward to test him for 10 days, and the steward listened to Daniel. So Daniel and his four friends were able to remain faithful to God so that their identities as worshipers of Yahweh would stay intact. 
Sometimes I wonder if the reason people are not attracted to the gospel of Jesus Christ has more to do that they don't know what a Christian is. Like, they're just like, I don't know what a Christian is. I know they go like to church and they read the Bible, but what really is a Christian? We've become so assimilated into the culture. We've, our belief systems have been so much blended into the world that no one even knows what a Christian is. It doesn't look any different than any other religious person or any other person that matter. Even in the idea of contextualization, you know, trying to be like the world. We've overemphasized contextualization that even in some cultures, like when a Christian becomes a Muslim becomes a Christian in some Islam, Islamic countries, they'll still act like a Muslim. They'll still call themselves a Muslim. They'll still go to a mosque and, and practice the, the five prayers and they don't look any different than a Muslim. So their identity hasn't changed. They just have been assimilated and blended into the, the larger culture. What does it mean to be a Christian? The faithfulness to God, which displays their identity to the Babylonians, won them great influence in this foreign land. And number, number three is Conciliari, Conciliari, the advisor. And there, there's a book that just came out called The Gatekeeper. Um, there's a political book, and being a political science person, I bought it the first day it came out. And... Um, it talks about the role of the chief of staff in the White House, the president's chief of staff. Do you know that the chief of staff position is not addressed in the Constitution whatsoever? So the chief of staff of the White House can wield extraordinary power in Washington politics because there's nothing really limiting their power. It's really up to the president how much power they have. So there's just like this, this um, ambiguous nature, and there's just very little written limits to its power. So an advisor or someone behind the throne has the ear of the leader, the ear of the power to influence the power. So we see that Daniel, that God had given them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. Again, God is illustrated as in control. He gives them talent and skills. They are brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding by which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the musicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Their faithfulness to God, by not defiling themselves from the king's food, earned them success before the king. We'll see next week in chapter 2 how God's continued to give favor to Daniel and his friends as they advance in the king's court. It's just an interesting change of fate. You would think based off Daniel's approach by literally insulting the king that he would not find success. The thought is to find success in the world of power is to do what they tell you to do, not do the opposite. But instead, Daniel was faithful. Advancement was achieved not by assimilating fully into the culture, but advancement was achieved through holiness. Sometimes we think to earn favor, we must become like the world to earn influence and favor, which makes no sense, actually, if you think about it. Because if God is the true sovereign and ruler over man, if he's the ruler over history, he is in control. Obedience to him is the only path to true success. Because he's really in power. He's really in control. He is the king you serve, not the kingdoms of the world. Another important point to observe is the superiority of the wisdom of God over the wisdom of the world. Obeying God and being faithful to him shows a higher source of wisdom. The resort of their diet and the wisdom led to being ten times better than all the other figures in the king's court. 
So what led, which led to a long and fruitful political career for Daniel? We see the last verse. It's this little tag-on verse in 21. Um, point number four is the screenwriter. And one of my favorite screenwriters is Wes Anderson. Some of his movies are a little quirky, I understand. But I like his characters, and I love the way he writes stories, and how he creates these worlds, and he creates these characters. And God is the great screenwriter. He has control of history. He's working history out to bring himself glory. And we see this verse in 21 that Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. And we see in Ezra 1.1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also putting it in writing. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house of Jerusalem, which is in Judea. He literally sends the people back to Judah. He actually gives them money and materials to build the temple, uh, temple again. You have to ask yourself, how much was David, Daniel involved in that? It says here that he was with Cyrus, the king of Persia, in his first year, that Daniel had influence to the king of Cyrus. And you see this proclamation by Cyrus returning the people back to their lands. How Daniel, God used what happened to Daniel to give him influence to actually bring his people back home. You think about your own life, how God has placed you in certain situations and how he's used good and bad situations to bring you to a place you are now or will be. I think of my life here in Evansville. When me and my wife moved here, we didn't know anyone here. I mean, literally, we didn't know any. I didn't even know Evansville existed. Like, I didn't even know it existed. I didn't know it was a city in the world until we moved here. That's a true statement. And we moved here, and we helped the, uh, a couple plant a church. And in that process, I got a job at USI as a college. And some of y'all are here. I know some of you here because of God bringing me to Evansville. And we, we, started, we were part of this college ministry that we helped kind of grow and be a part of. Then we started Redeemer Fellowship Church. And we had no idea that God brought us here to do that. No, I, we would be lying to you to tell you, this is our master plan. We're going to move to Evansville, and then we're going to be a part of a college ministry, and it's going to be so cool. We're going to be so close to the students. We're going to marry a lot of them, and then we're going to start a church, and we're going to invite them to be part of the church. Like, that was not some master plan that me and Lisa had that we had written on this massive blueprint. That was not a part of our, uh, we didn't, just didn't, didn't know what God was going to do. He brought us to this foreign land. And what God has done by placing us in this situation, you have no idea what God has planned for your life. No idea. He is so sovereign and so in control. He is such the Lord that he may have put you in a situation you're not really happy about. You have no idea how God's going to use that for his greater glory. You have no idea. No idea. Just a few applications to end. Discipleship of, of children starts in the home and the church. What's so interesting about the life of Daniel, and if you understand Israel, you understand their history, that they had a, had a reformation during the King Josiah, Josiah's reign, and that he found the law and how he brought the Passover back into Israel and their practices. And Daniel most likely was a child during that time. That if it wasn't for Josiah, and it wasn't for discipleship, and it wasn't for uh, how he was a disciple probably in his home, and also what was going on in the nation, Daniel would never have been as faithful as he was here in Daniel chapter 1. That discipleship starts in the home, and it starts in the church. And if you're a child, if you have children, that's why it's so important to get children involved in church. 
Discipleship starts here. And you have no idea how you're preparing children to be great ambassadors of Christ in the world. You have no idea how God's going to use them as God says that they are arrows to be shot out into the world. We see the power of holiness, really. Look at the power of holiness. Look what obedience does. Daniel took matters into his own hands. And what power that wielded. He literally told a chief advisor, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to be defiled by your food. I trust in God alone, and God will uh, vindicate what I'm doing. And you see a power of the holiness that his identity as his faithfulness to God, what it produced. The third thing is we see the superiority of God's wisdom over the wisdom of the world. Look at look what Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, says about Daniel and his friends. You are ten times better than all these people here. It's because of God's wisdom. That real wisdom, true wisdom of this world is not found in the books of man. It's not found in your history class. It's not found in the great education institutions of this country. It's found in God's word. That is the greater wisdom and the source of greater wisdom. The last one is we see God's sovereignty over the events of his children. That God is sovereign over the events of his people. That while he, they may be in a situation that it, it looks bleak, it looks like it's dark, it looks like there is no hope, God is in the midst of it. He is there. He is controlling things. He is ruling. And he will bring about his greater will and his greater promise. Kind of a, just in a conclusion, um, one of the things, I don't know if you know about Billy Graham. I know he died recently. You may have known about his crusades and his, his evangelism. Do you know that Billy Graham was trusted by just about every president since Harry Truman? That he had friendships with men of power. And it says that they, they, they did this book on it called The Pastor and, the, and His Presidents. And they read the book, but it's great. And there's an article about the book that the reason why the presidents trusted Billy Graham is they knew that they could be honest with him and he wouldn't tell the newspapers. They knew that he wouldn't tell the, the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the Wall Street Journal the secret details of the president's issues. They could trust him because he was a man of integrity. They trusted him because he was a man of holiness. And what influence Billy Graham had over great men like Nixon and Clinton and Bush and Reagan and, and, and Carter and Ford and, and uh, President Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson and Eisenhower, he had such influence in them because they trusted him because they knew he was a man of integrity, they knew he was a man of character, and they trusted him. And we, we think about what are ways that you could display to people that you're a Christian? It's a question you should ask yourself. How do I display to people around me that I'm an actual Christian? That they don't just, just, just assume that you're just a normal person, that you're not any different than anyone else, that you're not really, uh, you're not a Christian. They don't understand what a Christian is. Maybe by the language you use, how you utilize your lunch break to read scripture, the movies or TV shows you choose to watch, the music you choose to, to listen to, the way you dress, the way you treat someone from the opposite sex. The way you exchange, the way you encourage your coworkers or, or colleagues, the way you use your time, and how you prioritize church. What a great way to display that you're a Christian. One of the things that uh, I, I, I posted on uh, the Evansville uh, on our church website recently was the importance of going to church on vacation. What a way to display that you're a Christian by doing something so abnormal like going to church on, on your vacation. Because a lot of Christians are like, "Well, I'm on vacation. I'm not going to go to church." But think about what, when, you, when you go back to your workplace and they go, what did you do for your, for your vacation? Oh, we went to Destin. What else did you do? Oh, on our way down to Destin, we, went, we stopped for church. You stopped for church on your vacation? That's weird. Well, I'm a Christian. That's what we do. We go to church. We prioritize church. 
What a great way to display to the world that you're an actual Christian. Your identity is connected to Jesus Christ alone. And the world wonders about that. They ask questions about that. They actually could identify what that really is and not just wonder what a Christian is and what a Christian does. Let's pray. Thank you.